Nehemiah chapter 8 actually marks the beginning of a, a new focus now in Jerusalem. The first seven chapters were about building God's work, if you will. And these final six chapters are going to be about building God's people. So the first half was about construction. The second half will be about instruction. With the material needs of Jerusalem now met, it's, it's time now to meet the spiritual needs of the people who call it home. You see, Nehemiah knew that it was pointless to have a city that was well defended and well governed and well organized, but whose citizens were not pleasing to the Lord. He knew that unless the people fell in love with the Lord again, then they were destined to make the same mistakes that got them to where they were before Nehemiah showed up. And let me just say this, the same holds true for any local church today. It doesn't matter how beautiful the building is or how well organized it is or what ministries it offers. If the people who sit in the chairs aren't right with God, then it's all for naught. So Nehemiah knew that what Jerusalem needed was a good old-fashioned revival. He knew that those inside the walls of Jerusalem needed a new love and a new sense of obedience to God. And that's exactly what revival is. Revival is the moving of God's Spirit through the power of His Word to the hearts of His children that resurrects to new life those areas which have been lying uh, stagnant, dormant, and out of balance, and that results, here it is, in new love and obedience to Jesus Christ. Note, it is the moving of God's Spirit through the power of His Word. The key to any revival, be it corporately or individually, the key to any revival that has ever taken place or ever will take place, the key is the Word of God. And so with that, let's get into our text this morning, Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, we read this, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe, the word scribe there means theologian, if you will. They spoke to Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. Now this is the first mention of Ezra in the book of Nehemiah. 
Uh, there's a whole book that bears his name just prior to the book of Nehemiah. Ezra was one of, of three key leaders who left Babylon, Babylon for the restruction of Jerusalem. Uh, history tells us that Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple and Nehemiah, as we've been studying, rebuilt the walls, and it was Ezra who was responsible for restoring worship. We'll not turn there, but back in Ezra chapter 7, it says of him that he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. And then I like what it says about him in, in, in chapter, excuse me, in verse 10 of that same chapter, says that he was a man who prepared his heart to seek the Lord and to do it, excuse me, seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So as the man of God, Ezra committed himself to the study of God's word. He then applied it to his own life. And then he taught the people. And can I just say this to you this morning, church, that you should expect no less from anyone who stands behind this pulpit, be it myself or Pastor Tyler or anyone else, you have every right to expect us to have not only studied the Word of God, but to be living it out in our own lives before we ever try and stand here and preach it and teach it to you. You have that right to expect that from the man of God. From what we will see in the remainder of this chapter, there were three key elements to the revival that occurred in Jerusalem in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the first one was this, there was a desire for the word of God. Look at verse 2 if you would. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all they could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday. Now let me stop there. That's five to six hours. How would you have liked to have been on the nursery list for that day? How would you like to have been scheduled for children's church on that day? I want to hear any more gripe about preacher. You went a little bit over today. Not five or six hours. Man, we're talking a long time here. And he read it before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood. That's to be understood, not a pulpit like this. A pulpit, a platform like this. I've seen pictures of pastors standing on a pulpit trying to illustrate what, what uh, Nehemiah was doing. I'm not going to do that. 
There are a lot of reasons why I'm not going to do that. Number one, because it wasn't, a, it wasn't like this. It was a platform of wood that allowed him to stand above the people as we are today. And so he, he stood there, which they had made for that purpose. And beside him stood, now hang with me here, Mattathiah and Shema, and Aniah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Maasiah on the right hand, and on the left hand, Padiah and Mishael and Malchiah and Hashab, and this is my favorite guy, Hashbadana. Wow. Makes Bill sound pretty good. Zechariah and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Say, well, preacher, how come sometimes when people come to our church, the pastor that's preaching asks us to stand up when we open our Bibles? Well, they take it from Nehemiah chapter 8. It's a biblical practice. It's fine. I don't think it's a command. I don't think it's something that we have to do. But it's certainly proper. And usually they'll say something like this, would you stand for the honoring of God's word? There's not anything in the world wrong with that. Sometimes I've done it. If I think you're asleep, I'll have you stand. <laughs> so now you know the secret. And so they stood up. Where am I at? Verse 6. Now I like this part. And all the people answered, Amen. Amen. Preacher, why do we say amen in church? Well, we don't sometimes. <laughs> we should more often. It's a biblical practice. It's okay. The word amen means so be it, or I agree, or that's right. So you can say any of those things. You can say sick and preacher, I don't care. I think Pastor Tyler may, may mention a little bit about that tonight in our study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's okay to support the pastor when he preaches. Now, ladies, jabbing your husband in the side with the elbow, that's not the same as amen. That's like, listen, dude, you need this. All right, that's not what they said. Amen, amen, with lifting up of their hands. Why do you raise your hand sometimes? Well, because I can. Because I can. And it's proper. And it's right. It's right to say amen. It's Right to stand up when the, when the scripture's read it. Right to, to raise our hands in church. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Yeshua and Benai and Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodijah, Maasiah, Kaleida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. Probably what happened, you can imagine, they didn't stand there and read five or six hours straight through. There were some breaks, and when there were some breaks, there were some Levites and some other men that were learning the Word of God that would, would explain what had just been read to the people. And so there were 13 men on the platform with Nehemiah, there were 13 men out in the congregation, and, and probably that's, that's what took place. 
Verse 8, so they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. So every indication is given here that these people desired to hear what God had to say. They weren't interested in Ezra's opinions. They weren't looking, they weren't asking him to tell them a story or to entertain them. They wanted to hear the word of God. Sadly, preaching has fallen by the wayside in, in some churches today because it's, it's deemed irrelevant and, and in some cases even offensive. Uh, it's been replaced with motivational messages and therapeutic messages that are more palatable in today's cultural context. And I'm telling you, that's not the way it should be. The man of God just needs to stand up and preach the word of God. I love the story from the life of Charles Spurgeon way back in the day when one of his deacons came to him and, and told him that his preaching was rubbing the fur of some of the people the wrong way. And so Spurgeon's reply was that it's time for them to turn the cat around. His point was this, it's not my responsibility to change my preaching to fit your life. It's your responsibility for you to change your life to fit the Word of God. It's pure and simple. When you abandon the preaching of God's Word in church, then you become like a restaurant without food or a hospital without medicine. You have completely abandoned your purpose for existing. God, listen, the purpose of the church is primarily not to sing, not to have Sunday school. It's, it's not to do any of that. The primary purpose of a church is to preach the word of God. We are God's people, for crying out loud. And God speaks to his people through the pages of the scripture. The word of God is for the people of God. Something else I want to draw your attention to is that the people's desire for God's Word made them attentive to it. Now here's the simple truth this morning. We pay attention to what is important to us. If I were a successful investor standing before you this morning telling you how to double your investments in six months, no doubt I would have your attention. God forbid this should happen to anyone in here today, but if you were diagnosed next week, with some serious life-threatening disease. And the doctor began explaining the various treatment options that were available and which one had the best chance to be successful. You would hang on every word because the information being passed on to you would be important. Again, we pay attention to what is important to us. And let me just say a, a little something about what we read in verse 8, because I think this is so important. Look at it again. So they read in the book, uh, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. Here's what that tells me this morning. Sound Bible preaching must be accurate, clear, and applied to life. In other words, it must accurately reflect what is being taught in the text. I don't know about you, but there have been sometimes I've listened to preachers on the radio or TV, and I'm, they're preaching and they're reading the Word of God, and then they're saying what it means. I think, where did you get that? 
That is not what that means. So it must be accurately uh, reflected what is in the text. It must be explained in, in a way that is understandable by those who are receiving it. And then it must seek to answer the question, so what? Listen, if you come to any preaching service at Fellowship Baptist Church and you leave with that question unanswered, we have not done our job. It's not just about interpretation and explanation. If I or Pastor Tyler or one of our staff or some other pastor does not give you the application and you leave here saying, so what does that mean for me? What am I supposed to do with that? If we haven't clearly explained that to you, we haven't done our job. Verse 8 says that that's exactly what they did. They interpreted, they explained it, and then they helped them make that application to their life. So revival begins in our heart personally, in our church corporately, whenever there is a desire for the Word of God. Secondly, there must be a response to the Word of God. Look at verse 9 in Nehemiah, which is, which is the Tershitha, or the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto the Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions to make great myrrh, because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. So there are two reactions on the part of the people in Nehemiah's day to what they heard. First of all, the Bible says that they wept. And why did they weep? Because they were made to understand the seriousness of their sin and disobedience that had gotten them where they were. See, here's something that is, that is true about the Word of God. It brings conviction. It brings conviction. People have said before, well, I just don't like going to that church because it just, I, I just never feel good. Well, amen. If there are parts of our lives that aren't good, then the Holy Spirit ought to point those out to us. And that's what the preaching of the Word of God does. Paul said this in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's all profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And I know you've heard it explained this way before. The Word of God tells us what's right, that's, that's uh, doctrine. Tells us what's not right, that's reproof. Tells us how to get right, that's correction. And it tells us how to stay right, that's the instruction in righteousness. And most of the time, the what's not right and the how to get right parts can be painful. But there's a reason the Bible is referred to as a sharp two-edged sword that pierces and a hammer 
that crushes and the fire that burns because it hurts sometimes. When Peter stood and preached on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says that the hearts of the people were pricked. They were pricked in their hearts. When I read that, I, I remember my pastor, Pastor Landis, was diabetic, and, and that was long before they had those uh, new fangle tests that you can do today. But like two or three times a day, he would prick his finger. And so one time I said, so does that hurt? And he said, well, let's see. And so I, he pricked my finger. That wasn't excruciatingly painful, but if I sat through a message on the day of Pentecost and I kept feeling those pricks in my heart by the Holy Spirit, it would have gotten painful. And so if you're ever in a church service and you, you become uncomfortable because of what the preacher's preaching and it feels like, like somebody just keeps pricking you with a pen, then just chalk it up. That's the Holy Spirit. He's talking to me. I need to listen. Sometimes the preaching of the Word of God stings, and it should when it touches on our sin. But listen, when our sin is confessed and repented of, then it's time to stop mourning and start rejoicing in what we sung about this morning, God's great mercy and grace. I like what Warren Wearsby said. He said, it is as wrong to mourn when God has forgiven us, as it is to rejoice when sin has conquered us. So in order for revival to take place, there must be a desire for the Word of God. There must be the proper response to the Word of God. And then the third distinguishing mark of real revival is obedience to the Word of God. You still with me? I'm hurrying. Verse 13. And on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people and the priests and the Levites unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go forth unto the mount. And fetch olive branches, and pine branches, and myrtle branches, and palm branches, and branches of thick trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went forth, verse 16, and brought them and made themselves booths, every one upon the roof of his house, and in the house of God, and in the street of the water gate, and in the street of the, the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Jeshua, that would be Joshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And there was very great gladness. Also day by day, from the first day unto the last day, he read in the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according to unto the manor. Now to give you an idea of what we just read, this celebration uh, was known as the, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was a seven-day ob observance in which the Jews uh, lived in these, these little booths, these, uh, <laughs> these Gilligan's Island-type huts, uh, if you will, 
that they erected, and most, most of the time they were on the, uh, the flat roofs of, of, of their houses. And its intended purpose was to remind them to look back and remember the nation's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness when the people were homeless and lived in temporary shelters. And let me note this. This is important. It was the second day of the month when they discovered this truth. And this feast was supposed to start on the 15th day. And they were to go out and gather all of these branches and all of this wood to make this, to make this booth for their family to dwell in. And so they didn't have a lot of time to get going. They didn't have a lot of time to make this happen. And so here's my point this morning. When they found out they were supposed to, what they were supposed to do according to the word of God, they did it. And they went all in. I'm, I'm, I'm talking, I was reminded of the movie Sandlot and, and Ham and, and his cannonball into the swimming pool. I mean, they went all in. If you haven't missed that classic, you need to go home and get it and watch it. Cannonball! I mean, they went all in. And when we hear the word of God and we're moved to obedience, may our obe obedience be all in. So when you learn what the Bible has to say about giving, don't make excuses, just do it. And go all in. When you learn what God says about being in church and not forsaking services, don't make excuses. Just do it. Go all in. When you learn how you're supposed to love your wife or, or respect your husband, don't make excuses. Just do it. Go all in. When you learn how you're supposed to obey your parents, young people, don't make excuses. Just do it. Go all in. When you learn how you're supposed to be in the Word and pray and serve, don't make excuses. Just do it. Go all in. But here's our tendency. The tendency is for us to just kind of ease into it. It's like we ease into a pool that's not heated. Now, I'm a sissy britches when it comes to that kind of stuff. You know, so it's like, kind of get used to it, and I may put the other foot in. Depends on if the grandkids are there. Come on, Papa! So you hush over there. And then, you know, you take a little, a little deeper, and it gets to your knees, and then a little deeper, and it gets up to your thighs. And then you, oh, it gets really cold. Listen, don't ease into obedience to God. I'm not going to cannonball off this thing, but. <laughs> Go all in for crying out loud. Amen. Do you know how easy it would have been, in all seriousness, you know how easy it would have been for the children of Israel at this point to say, you know, man, we only got 13 days to get this done. I don't think we're going to be able to get this done. And I know it needs to be done, and we should have been doing it a long time ago, and we should do it now, but listen, we just, we don't have enough time. And so what, let, let's do this, let's, let's do it next year, let's start this next year. We'll be ready for it, we'll have plenty of time. They could have easily done that. And how many times have we left church knowing the Holy Spirit has said to us, you need to do that. 
You need to get into that. You need to start reading your Bible. You need to start praying. You need to be in church. You need to give. You need to love your wife. You need to respect your husband. You need to obey your parents. You need to do whatever. And we leave and we say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get around to that. I am. I'm, I'm going to get around to it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. I know I need to do it. Preacher, I'm not arguing with you. I know it's right. I know it's what I need to do. And I'm going to. I really am. And then six months later, we hear another message like this. Like, oh, man, I forgot about that. We okay? It happens. It happens. Can I just remind you what James said? He said, but be ye doers of the word, not hearers only. Deceiving your own selves. Our three-year-old grandson has 14 verses committed to memory. He's three years old. And his mom and dad had him recite those verses to me the other day. And this was one of them. He said, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. And I interrupt. And, yeah, way to go. That's great. He said, deceiving your own selves. He said, Papa, I'm not done yet. There's another part of that verse. Very important part of that verse. And then he, he goes on and he explains, for if we be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he said, then we're like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. We've looked into the Word of God. We've been made to see exactly the kind of person we are. But then he just walks away and doesn't pay attention. He straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Let us not walk away from a service like this today, having been made to see where we're wrong and where we're falling short and where we need to improve, and then just close it and go on about our business like nothing is wrong. What a sad waste of time. When we can make changes in our life. And listen, I know sometimes we can hear a message like this, it's just too uncomfortable, it's just too much, it's too hard, it's too demanding. And so rather than go all in, we just decide to stay the same. Now as harsh as this may sound this morning, it is what it is. And what that is, is disobedience. And understand, you're not being disobedient to the preacher. You don't answer to me. You're not accountable to me. You answer to God. And you're accountable to God. And your disobedience isn't to this pastor or to this church. It's to God. Which makes it even worse. Now look at verse 17. I love this. And there was very great gladness when they were made to see their error when they were made to see their disobedience and they decided to change and comply with the instructions of the word of God it said there was very great gladness listen to me this morning you will never regret going all in for Jesus I've yet, Brother Nelson, I've yet to meet somebody who looked me in the eye and said to me, I regret the day 
that I went all in for the Lord. I wish I had not done that. In nearly 40 years of ministry, I've never heard that. Nobody has ever told me, Pastor, I regret the day I started tithing and giving offerings. I regret the day I committed myself to that church in membership. I regret the day I got involved in ministry. I regret the day I ever started making Sunday and Wednesday night church a priority. I wish I'd never done that. Nobody has ever said that. But I've met with a lot of people who have said to me, Pastor, I wish that I'd never taken that first step away. Bridget, I wish I had never slacked off and gotten soft. Bridget, I wish I'd never headed down that road. Let me show you the definition of revival again. It's the moving of God's Spirit through the power of His Word to the hearts of His children that resurrects to new life those areas which have been lying stagnant, dormant, or out of balance, and that results in new love and obedience to Jesus Christ. So here's the question today. Are there some areas of your life that have been lying stagnant, dormant, out of balance? Have you started, listen, have you started that slow drift away from all in? I know it probably doesn't seem like much. And I know that Pastor Nelson could give you the same, same testimony today. He's seen it, I've seen it. People who started that slow drift away from all in. It didn't seem like that big a deal at the time. It didn't seem that important at the time. It really didn't seem like it was hurting at the time. But listen to me this morning. Over time it will be more than you could have ever imagined. I use an illustration that Pastor Tyler used back at the first of the year. Imagine yourself flying from Los Angeles to New York City. So the pilot, he leaves LAX and he adjusts the heading just three and a half degrees south. Just a little minuscule adjustment. But by the time you got across the country, you would land in Washington, D.C. instead of New York. Now listen, such a small change is hardly noticeable at takeoff. But over the length of the trip, you continue to drift. And where you're going to land is not at all is where you intended to land. Amen. 
at the beginning. Listen to me this morning. Any drift away from obedient living, at some point you're going to land somewhere where you don't want to land. You're going to find your marriage somewhere where you never intended for your marriage to be. You're going you're to experience a life with your teenagers that you never intended. It's an unintended consequence of your drift as a parent. Young people, listen to me. The fact you're in church today and some of you with your family, you've been given a great opportunity. And every slow drift, every minute step away from what you know is right will lead to a place that you don't want to be. And there are plenty of adults in here this morning that could give testimony to that very fact. They were raised right. They were taught right. They started making little, little deviations from what they knew was right. And by God's grace, they're back tonight, back today. But if they could, could have done it different, they would have. Church, it pays to go all in. And maybe what you need today in your heart is just an old-fashioned revival. It says, man, I have drifted. I've let some things lay, and I've gotten lazy, and I've slacked off, and Man, I started out strong reading my Bible at the first of the year, and now here I am. I, I didn't pick it up all week. Well, the great thing about God is He gives mulligans, gives do-overs. And today could be your do-over day. God, I'm sorry, I've drifted. I've, I've let some things lie. I've let some things become stagnant in my marriage stagnant in my walk with God, stagnant in my relationship with my parents, stagnant in my relationship with my kids. And God, I'm thankful today that you have sent me a message to tell me that I need to get back. I need to adjust my course and get back headed in the right direction. Every head bowed today and every eye closed.